I think some of the things are, what are you trying to accomplish? What is your unique voice and be authentic to yourself? And then what do you feel comfortable with? You know, it's not fair to expect, you know, the older generation of REIs to get on the platform. Although I know you think that's no excuse, but in reality to them, what do they have to gain from it? They're, they're busy enough. They're, they're not interested in what rewards you'll get from it. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Now here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Today on Inside Reproductive Health, I'm joined by Dr. Dan Nayout, who practices in private medicine at Trio Fertility in Toronto, Ontario. Dr. Nayout studied at the University of Western Ontario for medical school. He completed his OBGYN residency at the University of Toronto. He completed his fellowship of REI at the Harvard of the North, McGill University. And then he went on to get his master's at the McGill of Massachusetts, Harvard. He has been on a number of programs in Canadian television all over the internet, including his own YouTube show, Ask Dr. Dan. Dr. Nayat, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Happy Valentine's Day, Griffin. (laughs) Happy Valentine's Day to you, Dan. So I'm excited to have you on the show uh, because I want to talk about how REIs become media personalities. I think that's how you and I met originally. I saw the Canadian view, which I believe is called the social on CTV. They tweeted something out and then you and I started talking. How did that come to be? So I think my introduction to public relations came from my wife. She actually owns a PR agency. So just from osmosis, I've been learning about the trends and the different medias, and she's been pushing me to get involved for years and years. I always felt that I probably shouldn't get involved till I became an expert in the field. So I, I waited through residency and through fellowship, and then it was the green button. I think the key for her to push me was that she thought I had this talent to take complex issues and simplify to a quick message, which I give her a lot of thanks for pushing me. The, what pushed myself is to me... Infertility still has a stigma. I think we need to, you know, fight for our patients, add exposure. And so, you know, I also joined the executive board of Fertility Matters Canada, which is the Canadian version of Resolve. And I think getting out there and, you know, just talking about infertility in the different facets is really helpful. So long story short, you know, behind every great man is a great woman. So couldn't say no to my so just marry a PR expert. That's the advice we can give to every REI listening. There you go. You're done. Well, I'm wondering now, I, and I was thinking about this as I was getting ready for our interview, is it, it seems like it, it's a nicety to be able to reach more people via platforms. But at some point, at, at what point does it just become the expectation? Like, I think if we're talking about practicing medicine in the civil war days, bedside manner matters about 0%, right? But now as everything has ratings and everybody's talking about things on social media and, you know, the, the commentary of just how we're supposed to treat people in, in society, taking a political turn. I think the emphasis on being a personable, empathetic physician is no longer a nicety. What do you think about that? 
Totally. I think especially in the world of fertility where it's personalized, it's, you know, very emotionally driven, you know, there's a private sector to it. I think patient expectations and delivering a five-star experience is it's now critical. Like the young REIs have a lot more work compared to the old REIs. And some of us always joke around that, you know, we wish we could do it in a more simplified way, but you know, it's going to take us longer. I think our job is not just to, you know, listen, diagnose, come up with a treatment plan. We, we need to educate, we need to motivate, we need to be transparent, to be organized, we need to personalize. So it takes a lot of effort, but you know, you know, jobs evolve and I think it's best for the patient. That's so hard, though. Is that even possible at scale? Because to be an REI, that is, by definition, a very rare skill set. In the United States, there's only about 1,100 board-certified REIs. In In Canada, you have maybe a couple hundred. And so in all of North America, you've got less than 2,000 people that are qualified to do this job. And it's 15 years of higher ed. And it is the among the most difficult boards in medicine. And then in parallel to that, being an empathetic, charismatic person who gets ideas across easily and makes people feel listened to, that's not a common skill set in and of itself either. So you're layering these two things. One is extremely rare. The other is uncommon. You're (laughs) combining the two. How is it even feasible that we can expect new doctors to be able to fulfill this pattern? It's, it's a good question. I, th- I think it's what we should be aiming for. And I think it's something we can teach. I mean, you can't teach certain like personality traits, but you can certainly teach what we would consider good medicine now versus bad. I think having good mentors, you know, getting feedback from your colleagues, from your patients are going to help. But, you know, it might be rare, but I, I think everybody could do a better job at it, including myself. But some people have a personality. And I think of you, I think of a few other people that they're just, these are women and men that if I were at a bar or at a ski lodge, I would enjoy spending the weekends with them. And then I think other people, you know, maybe a two minute exchange of hellos after dinner would be just fine. So to me, national personality goes so far. I do put you in that category. You said you think it can be trained. How can it be trained and how much is natural personality? Well, well, you know, I sorry to interrupt, but I think you make a really good point. But the, I think the perception is that there is a optimal way to be with patients, but really there are patients who probably don't connect with my personality. There are, I think if I were to rethink the business model. I would almost try to match the right personalities of a patient with the right personalities with a pa- with a physician. For example, I'm somebody who likes to educate, present option, present statistics, walk through the logic of patients. And once in a while, I see patients who at the end of it are just overwhelmed with information and wish they had a more paternalistic physician who gave them confidence that this is the route they need to take. So you know, although the counter argument to that, you know, your ability as a physician is to read your patients. So if you can sense that your patient requires more guidance and less options, you know, that's up to you to pivot. You know, that that also brings me to another point, you know, some of the most brilliant physicians I know are like nowhere, anywhere near on the internet, on media, on sites like RadeMDs, but they're they're just brilliant. But maybe they just their ability to to interact with patients is just a bit different. Let's explore this idea of matching patients and physicians a little bit better because Lisa Duran talks about this with using a Myers Briggs 
test. You have patients take the test, you, you see who they align with, and they match with a, a doctor who's more similar. So at smaller practice with one or two physicians, this wouldn't be an option, but we work with clinics that have 12 doctors or bigger, and that you could probably cover the four major types of personality quadrants with that many doctors and probably have a lot happier patients. How would this work? How does it, how do they get matched and what part of the process does it take place? I've heard Lisa lecture about this and I think it's a brilliant idea. I've never seen it actively used. It might be in some clinics. I've just never seen it, but I think it's brilliant. I would assume it would be sort of on the intake questionnaire. Obviously, you should know who the physicians are already and try to match it up. But that happens all the time. A lot of times I see patients and of course, I'm dedicated to help them. But in my the back of my head, I think, you know what? you know, doctor number seven down the hall would serve you so much better than me on so many different levels. So you haven't seen it yet. Neither have I that I can think of off the top of my head. Why not? I don't know. I think it takes a really innovative business director to implement it. Yeah. Maybe we should defer to Lisa. Maybe she's seen it. Maybe she has to be a guest on the the podcast. I think that's probably overdue. (laughs) But that brings us into a, a larger segue of you know, it would have to be an innovative business director to come up with that. And you're, you're probably right, or an innovative CEO, an innovative medical director. And just by, if I'm looking at the opposite of that, I'm envisioning some resistance of, oh, this is just one more thing, or if it's just, and can't we just see the, the patient as it is? And I'm thinking, you know, there, there is a lot of resistance to, this would be a, a fairly big operational change. I don't think you could just snap your fingers and, and match physicians with new patients by personality. But if you put in the work to do so, I could see it saving so much headaches down the road. For, for, for physicians, for patients, you know, I know you talk a lot about attrition and dropout. I think this will be very nice, you know, upstream business change that you could do to affect them. And that's probably a good segue for what comes when physicians and patients aren't matched properly and something does go wrong, which then they go online and say, Dr. So-and-so called me fat when they're referring to maybe the doctor recommended a plan for reducing BMI doctor gave a diagnosis of diminished ovarian reserve and the, the patient perceived that the doctor called me old and then they go on fertility IQ or Google reviews or Facebook or rate MDs. And that's a place where you have had uh, a lot of success. I used to look at rate MDs a lot more frequently before Google and Facebook and fertility IQ became more popular. But I remember as a, of a couple of years ago, you were top 10, if not top five rated in both star rating and in quantity. And you were like one or two years out of fellowship. And so how does that happen? Um, because that's not, you're, you're not being matched with everybody who just likes your personality. This is just you seeing patients at large ending up oh, there. That, that's uh, very nice of you to say. Well, I mean, I think just talking about rate MDs is a two hour podcast if we diverge. But, you know, I think as general, I think physicians are kind of scared of something like rate MDs because it's kind of we're being judged and we don't really get our side of the story. Sometimes it's for good reasons and sometimes it's just truly miscommunication. I mean, rate MDs doesn't measure, you know, how well you did on your boards or your pregnancy rates or your intentions. It, it measures the perception of the patient. And I think that all comes down to, you know, 
communication skills and high EQ and being able to, you know, why use the word fat? What you're trying to say is, you know, I'm concerned about your weight and the, the, the success rates and the risk. You know, there's a better way to articulate that that might not offend someone. So in some ways. Well, but by the way, that doctor may have articulated that way, but because of some other perception and communication style, the patient walked away. Thinking for sure, for she sure. called me. I, I think on the other hand, it does put MDs under the microscope, which, you know, makes us, you know, uh, you know, my, my analogy is sort of like I've never I don't actually know how to cook and I'm far from a chef. But, you know, I assumed if you owned a restaurant and a food critic would come in, you would put on your five star experience. And when you don't know when the food critic is, it forces you to do that to every patient. And so when the patients have that power. I think it forces everybody to treat everybody exactly the same, which I think is excellent. So now we're at this sort of, I wonder if we're at a little bit of a curve with online reviews, because to your point, 20 years ago, there was a food critic for the Toronto Star and maybe for the TV stations or radio stations. There was probably a couple, even in a big city, there were a couple major food critics, right? And then you didn't know who that person was. And then we got to have platforms like Yelp, Urban Spoon, Google, and all of these different kinds of review platforms where, oh my gosh, this one person said something bad about us. I remember I used to get Southwest and JetBlue to give me so much stuff when I would be mad about in the early days of Twitter, my flight would be delayed 10 minutes. I'd get on, light them up, but sorry, Griffin, we'll give me free Wi-Fi or drink coupons or whatever. And now, you know, my flight could be totally canceled. I'm stranded for four days. I'm true. <laughs> Screw you, Southwest. And they're like, yeah, uh, have they've already, blo- already blocked your account. <laughs> and they don't care anymore because it's it's we, we've turned the other corner. So I wonder, I don't think we're there yet in our field, at least from a level of physicians being accustomed to it. But are, are you there personally where you do want to treat it as though like everything that I do can be expressed to the outside world, but at the same time, I still know that I can't please everyone and I have to do my job. I I agree with you. And I think the pendulum will swing just as like you said, I mean, there's not going to be a rate my patients, but there's probably going to be a platform that, you know, maybe has some sort of third party judge in between to say this was a miscommunication. You know, sometimes you go on rate MDs and say, you know, nobody called me back, but for all you know, they had the wrong number. You know, that's not really fair to the physician. But yeah, I think the pendulum will totally swing, but you know, it is our job to treat everybody in a five star experience. Let's talk about that a little bit about just sort of treating everybody as a five star experience, because the way that I have adapted the, the, the axiom, the customer is always right. The customer is not always right. The patient is not always right. The patient's plural as the market are always right. So in other words, when patients are telling us that we expect this from billing, we expect this from scheduling, we expect this in response times for a physician. We use that not as of this one particular time I should have gotten there. But if we're hearing it over and over again, then we need to address that problem in some way. Talk about how you use all of the feedback. Yeah. To- I just wanted to add an example. So, you know, when you are trying to figure out how to articulate well, so Sometimes people come in for second opinions and that happens all the time. I get second opinions. My patients go for second opinions. I think that's great. And sometimes even though you come up with the exact same diagnosis and conclusion, it is very apparent that somebody didn't sit down with the patient 
to explain to them. You know, they didn't pass their board exams. They don't know as much about fertility as you. And what's very clear and obvious, you need to sit down to explain. Something as simple as you have PCOS. You know, you might know what it is. Some patients don't know how did you come up with that diagnosis. Walk them through it. You know, it does take more time. But at the end of the session, even though it's the same reproductive outcome, the patient understands the rationale. Like, the reason they're saying I need to move on to egg donation is for these seven points that are clearly seen in my chart. Nobody's walked me through that. And I think that's so important, you know, closure and having like the power in the patient's hand. I think it's extremely important. So the, your point about explaining information in such a way that, that someone needs is pretty in line with we don't always need to change everything about the experience. I do totally acknowledge that many of our patients are coming to us with unrealistic expectations. I talk about this on a, another podcast episode with Hannah Johnson from Vios Fertility. Is people are used to getting everything instantly. If I can find the, the stat quickly, I'll link it in the show notes. But it's something to the tune of 90% of people open a text message within 10 minutes. And they're expecting the same level of correspondence from their fertility center, which is totally unrealistic. So it's our job. Also, it doesn't mean we need to change our process, but we do need to reset those expectations. Whether it's our fault that that they have those expectations or not, it is in our best interest to reset those expectations when patients... Before yeah, I, patients I agree with you. Pushback, though, I'll give you is that we are in a field that's rapidly evolving. If you don't evolve, you're doing a disservice. So there are some clinics who a patient phones in for a consult and they won't get back to them for like a week. You know, imagine you went to book a restaurant and somebody didn't call you for three days. You're, you're going somewhere else immediately. So everything is evolving. You know, patients in 2019 expect transparency, accountability, I, I'm not saying immediate access, but, you know, text, text messaging, online appointments. Think about even just off the top of my head, you know, somebody who comes in to socially freeze their eggs. Okay. And they go through the process and they've got 11 eggs frozen. Most clinics, you know, send the patient home and say, we've got your eggs here. But, it, you know, it's 2019. You know, patients want documentation. They want to see pictures of their eggs. They want to know where they're stored. I don't think that's so unreasonable. I mean, they paid a lot of money for it. Their dreams, hopes, future are resting upon it. And if they can, you know, if, if they have a baby cam to know what ha- is happening with their kids at all times, they have a house cam to, to see what's happening outside of their garage when they go on vacation. I think it's a fair expectation for, for eggs also. And yeah, I think it leads us to... Uh, a point that I really try to discuss this with clinics when we're consulting with them, which is it's my opinion that every single thing that should be automated should be automated and everything that should not be automated should not be. What I mean by that is things like scheduling, things like alerts or any information on protocol that can be in one place, modules that should all be automated so that you can have the time the patient that should be individualized just tailored to their experience and with physicians if they think well we don't want to do something like engaged md because we want them to have that time with the nurse it's like yeah but the nurse doesn't need to be explaining 
injections and all of that stuff, they can do that at home as long as it's positioned that they, when they come in and talk to the nurse, that it's going to be about them, about their case. So talk a little bit about how automation can actually be used to increase personalization. I, I mean, I, I 100% agree with you, which is why I think we end up having drinks at every conference. <laughs> but uh, I think there's a misconception that automation means not personalization. And I don't think so. Automation is just part of the system. So there are parts that can be automated, but that doesn't take away from the personalization. If you go too far, like if the patient walks into my clinic and I didn't even say hello, but I handed her a treatment plan of three cycles of IUI, then you'll do IVF. That's not personalization. That's automation. That's a detrimental to the patient. And they know you didn't listen. You, you, you weren't personalized. You weren't detailed. But, you know, things that could be automated that's taken away time that you can spend with the patient. I think that's wonderful. So where do you think a lot of the resistance, where does a lot care. of this resistance come from? Because I'm, I'm telling you, Dan, one of the things that I feel that I have to solve, the fertility bridge has to solve is this issue of real-time patient scheduling. It's one of the things that just drives me nuts. It's, it's a deeper EMR issue, but just as a marketer, I'm, we're bringing leads to people. And then sometimes that they fall off because they're enter you know they're entering a contact form on somebody's website they get a call back a few days later they don't want to talk on the freaking phone in the first place which is why they entered that they don't want to go back and forth with you they want to be able to just look what's available book that we can collect their payment in advance to make sure that you know that, that they don't cancel um but we haven't done that as, as a field yet. And so what is the, the resistance to a lot of the automation that we're talking about? I, know, I, I mean, we're not the first, you know, every field needs to get consults and book patients in and cancel patients and reschedule. So I don't think we have to reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of fields that are doing this really well. Why don't we just learn from them and we can focus on the fertility focus innovations, which there are tons of. So to get these ideas out with patients, I see you've got a, a show called Ask Dr. Dan. And you are pretty active on Twitter. How does somebody talk about what that's like for a physician to start becoming a media person? Now, we started the show with that. We talked about how it's impacted through online reputation. But before it was you being on the Canadian View, you being on the social on CTV. Now it's you as the producer, you, you have other people producing it, of course, but it's your media platform. What's the difference and how does somebody get started? So, you know, every physician has different objectives of why they're engaging in media and what platforms. I know you're trying to push me to do Instagram and it is on my to-do list, but, you know, I've sort of... Yeah, welcome to 2013, is, Dan. What are we on? Snapchat? <laughs> what's the new... What's, <laughs> Instagram is still the queen for reaching our patient population. Now I see everybody on it. I had an article, you know, four years ago trying to, to get people on it. So now it's, it's more expensive to advertise and it's not quite as, as much of just an instant connection be, just from the nature of being the only REI on there. But as far as where our patient base is spending their time and attention, still Instagram all day. Right. But I, I would zoom out and say like, what is your incentive on being on any of these platforms? So for some people, it's, you know, you've got a specific message you're trying to spread. For some people, it's exposure and building their own brand for, you know, for their own practice. For some people, it's just their hobby. You know, I, like we started the show, what I think I have a unique ability to do and what I enjoy doing is to 
be able to synthesize more complicated things and add my little twist to it. So I don't like as much to just share news that people are doing. I, I like to maybe comment on it. Here's a really interesting study. This is why I think it's breakthrough. This is where I think they missed the mark. This is why I don't think it's related to all patients. This is what we need to be wary of. Things like that. So I like to comment on or or patients present to me a specific problems. I don't really just want to sound bite. I, w- I want to tell them you you know the pros and cons of going this way or that way. So that's sort of my angle. But I mean, there's lots of REIs who do a lot more media than me and do a better job than me at it. But I think it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. But what you described is exactly the unique angle that every individual person has, which is just their own perspective. And we know that most REIs have an opinion about something that might be contrarian, that they might say, well, yes, but that yes, but is really valuable in the social media context because it's what allows the patient to see your unique perspective. Otherwise, we can all publish success rates to make them look the best. We could advertise on cost, but expressing our own way of doing things, our own way of culture, our own personality is the differentiating point that that just other people can't replicate. I wrote four blog articles in 2018. I wish I had done a lot more content. I only did four blog articles, but they weren't top five ways to increase your SEO that literally thousands of people are writing. They were strictly about the state of business in the fertility field that nobody else could give that perspective. And so consequently, even though there were only four of them, they were really valuable. But what to your point, sharing our unique perspective is the differentiator. And because most REIs already have that opinion, it's a pretty easy segue just to start putting it into the world via social. Dan, how would you conclude our talk today of anything I didn't ask you about REIs becoming a media personality, whether it's through a large platform like CTV or whether it's their own YouTube channel, whether it's participating more on rate MDs, what haven't I asked you that you would want the audience to consider? Well, I, I think you're a champion of this and you articulate really well. I think some of the things are, what are you trying to accomplish? What is your unique voice and be authentic to yourself? And then what do you feel comfortable with? You know, it's not fair to expect, you know, the older generation of REIs to get on the platform. Although I know you think that's no excuse, but in reality to them, what do they have to gain from it? They're, they're busy enough. They're, they're not interested in what rewards you'll get from it. From the, the reverse, you know, the new graduates may feel like they're not experts yet. They want, they don't want to put their face out there because when you put your face out there, there's, you know, critics as well. I think just find your authentic voice and find your platform. Dr. Dan Nyout, good friend of mine. Thank you so much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. All right. Happy Valentine's, Griffin. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you have a strong opinion about today's episode, we want to hear it. Agree, disagree, or have another point to add, please email podcast at fertilitybridge.com and tell us if you recommend a guest or a topic for a future episode. If you're ready to skyrocket your fertility practices growth and double your IVF cycles, schedule your fertility marketing discovery call by clicking the link in the show notes. And if you just want to learn more tactics to market your fertility center, download our free ebook, The Ultimate Guide to Fertility Marketing on fertilitybridge.com, also available in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast, and we look forward to talking more fertility shop on future episodes. 